Good morning, church family. You and I both know that we are living in some very interesting times. As a matter of fact, I believe that if there was ever a time that we needed the Lord, we sure do need him now. And so today, as I share the word of God with you, I invite you to pray with me and for me as I speak to you under the subject, let justice roll, partners for progress. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are grateful for the privilege and opportunity to get into the word of God. It is my prayer, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable in your sight and encouraging to your people. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. I pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. I'll be very honest with you. The past several weeks have been painful. The past several weeks, I've gone through feelings of anger and bitterness. By the grace of God, I know the power of forgiveness. And I've experienced that power when I go into my prayer closet, considering all that has taken place. As a matter of fact, when I first saw the image the video of the officer with his knee on the neck of George Floyd. I began to say to myself, I don't know how I'm going to stand in front of a camera and speak a word to the people of God when I myself am hurting. I would also say to you that in the midst of this time, I've had a number of my white colleagues, my white friends to reach out to me and ask me this question. I have my PowerPoint here with me, so I'll be showing you some things on the screen. They asked me this question and the question that they asked was, what can I do to join this fight against injustice? What can I do? I mean, they were outraged themselves. They expressed to me their love for me. They expressed to me the fact that they may not be able to understand the pain that I have to go through as an African-American male living in America. But they assured me of their love. They assured me of their support. They assured me of their encouragement. But the question kept on coming back. In fact, I had people texting me the question. I had people calling me and asking me the question, what can I do as a white person? to fight the injustice that I see happening in our society. Well, I have spent time in prayer and I have spent time in the scriptures seeking to provide an answer to that question to my brothers and sisters this morning. On last Sabbath, Pastor Dwight shared a message with you that I thought was a very relevant uh, and powerful message. If you haven't seen it, I encourage you to go and check it out. And so I want to speak today specifically to my white brothers and sisters. There may be some among you who are trying to figure out what's the big deal. What is happening in society? I see people looting. I see people rioting. And you may not quite understand what's going on. And so I just want to share with you as an African-American male, as a pastor on the PMC uh, staff, as someone who is a seven-day Adventist believer in Jesus, from, from, from brother to brother, from uh, a family member to family member, I just want to share with you what God put on my heart as to answer this question. What can you do to join the fight 
against injustice. And I want to say to you today that we find in Luke chapter 18, verse 1 through 8, some answers to that question. This is a parable where I believe Jesus gives five things that can be done to fight the fight of faith against injustice. And the very first thing that I believe that this text reveals to us is that if you're going to join this fight, the first thing that you must do is educate yourself to understand the problems of injustice. And here's what will happen as you begin to educate yourself. Here's what will happen. You will begin to notice that injustice disproportionately impacts marginalized people. It disproportionately impacts minorities. When you go to this scripture, this parable that Jesus is giving here, the Bible says that Jesus said to his disciples in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Here you have this woman now and this judge. This judge, he he is described as someone who can care less about God, someone who doesn't care about God, and he does not care about people or what people think. This judge now is someone who represents a system that is broken because anytime you have someone sitting in the judgment seat who doesn't care about God and doesn't care about people, it's going to be extremely hard to get justice. And then you have this widow, this woman now who is during that time, a widow was somebody who depended upon the mercy of others, the justice of others, the love of others to be able to provide for them and take care of them because their husband died. And this widow, she's now living without her husband. What happened to her husband? I don't know. Maybe he went for a jog and while he was jogging, some people saw him and did not like the color of his skin and decided to hunt him down like he was an animal and kill him. Or maybe they were inside of their home. It was two o'clock in the morning and they were just getting some rest, getting some sleep, just like anybody else would want to do at two o'clock in the morning. And all of a sudden, some police officers burst in the door without knocking, without any warning. And they begin to let off shots. And he and he's hit now eight times while he is sleeping. I don't know what happened to her husband, but maybe her husband was at a store one time and he was probably doing something and the police was called on him and the police apprehended him and put him down and had their knee on his neck and took his life, even though he was begging for his life. I don't know what happened to the woman's husband, but the Bible lets us know that she is a widow and a widow during that time had to fend for herself. It's apparent that this woman doesn't have any children. This woman is not, is without her husband. And so what does she do? She goes and she begs this judge. She is asking for 
for mercy. I believe that God understood that there would be marginalized people on this planet because of sin. And God told his people in Exodus chapter 22 and verse number 22, the Bible says, do not take advantage of the widow. God knew that there will be people who would be taken advantage of because they were the minority. God knew that there will be people who would be in power and they would take advantage of other people. You see, that's what happened with sin, period. When there is sin in society, it pits us one against one another and the people in power abuse those who don't have the power. And this particular situation, I began to ask myself, what was the justice that she was after or what was the injustice that was done to her? And as I began to look and do some research, I came across one Bible commentary, the SDA Bible commentary to be exact. And here is what they noted about this text. They suggested that it was seen that the widow's husband had left her property, perhaps mortgaged to others, which they refused now to return at the stipulated time according to the provisions of the law. And they quoted Leviticus chapter 23, I believe. And now what they're saying here is that she is fighting against someone who has some property that's supposed to be hers, but because of their refusal, she can't get it. So she's going to a wicked judge, an evil judge who represents a corrupt system, and she is at his mercy now. I don't know exactly what the injustice was, but that sounds a lot to me like what African-Americans have gone through in this country for centuries. If you don't know what I'm talking about, there is a, uh, a book called The Color of Law. And in this book, it is detailed about how the government systematically, intentionally made sure that this practice of redlining took place. Some of you are asking the question, well, what does redlining mean? I'm glad you asked. Redlining was the practice, the illegal practice of refusing to offer services in a particular community because of the race or ethnicity of its residents. In other words, uh, if you are a black person, we are going to make sure that you are not going to live in this neighborhood around other white people. If you make a certain income, we're going to make sure that you can't get around this neighborhood right here. We're going to put you in the projects or we're going to put you over here primarily because of the color of your skin. This is real life. This actually happened. And so as you see frustration boiling over, as you see people rioting, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not condoning rioting. I'm not condoning looting. Looters loot, all right? But people who are out there peacefully protesting for injustice, that's a whole nother story. And if you get more upset at property being burned and buildings being destroyed, if you are more outraged at that, then you are at a man having the knee of an officer's neck, someone who swore to protect and serve. If you get more concerned about a building than a human, that's a problem. That is a problem. And that is one of the reasons why you have so many people who are angry right now. And I praise God that it's not just black folks who are angry, but you've got white people, you've got uh, Latinos, you've got Asians, you've got a number of people. The world now is protesting that this is a problem. 
It's a problem. It's a problem. And redlining was just one injustice. When you look at time after time and time again, when African-American male or female go before the justice system and we're trying to get justice or we're trying to just be treated fairly, there is a documentary called 13th. You should go and check it out. And in this documentary, you will discover how the United States of America has created laws so that even inside of the Constitution, uh, there is, which was supposed to ban slavery or make slavery illegal, there is a loophole that suggests if someone becomes incarcerated, they can still treat them like a slave. Even though African-American males make up 6% of the population, they make up 42% of those who are incarcerated in the United States of America. That is a problem. And it is a problem because it is an injustice. And what I'm trying to get you to understand that these things are what is leading to the George Floyd situation was really just the, the, the tipping point. And this is why people are saying black lives matter. Black lives matter because for so long, they haven't. I love this quote here. This quote that says we wouldn't have to have Black Lives Matter if we didn't have 300 years of Black Lives Don't Matter. And so this this is this is 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 a part of 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 what I would encourage you to educate yourself on, to learn about the injustices. And then as you are looking at these things and and and, and learning about these things, I, I want you to make sure that you pay attention to the life and teachings of Jesus. And I want you to study that when Jesus first stepped on the scene, when Jesus first showed up, when he went to the church and went inside the synagogue and opened up the uh, the, the scroll of Isaiah and Jesus now is announcing his mission statement to the world. He's declaring what he is, who he is and what he's all about and what he's come to do. And the Bible says that Jesus said that the spirit of the Lord is on me. Why? Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed Free. If you notice now, you have poor prisoners, blind, oppressed, poor prisoners, blind, oppressed. Who does that represent? That represented the minority. That represented the outcast. That represented the marginalized. When Jesus came on the scene, he had a heart for those who had been dismissed by society. Jesus came on the scene and said, hey, prisoners' lives matter. Blind lives matter. The oppressed lives matter. The poor lives matter. Jesus had a, a, a heart. Jesus, I believe, he had a special place for uh, 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 for ministering to those who have been marginalized. You find that when you start looking at the issues of injustice, that these things disproportionately impact marginalized people. So if you're going to be of service, if you're going to help fight the fight, the first thing you have to do is you have to educate yourself so that you can understand the problems of injustice. Here's the second thing you must do. The second thing you must do is you must feel the pain of injustice. Yeah, you must feel the pain of injustice. What do I mean by that? Listen, there's a young man who uh, I heard him share. I heard him sing this song. I can't sing. If I could sing, I would sing it for you. But I'm going to let him sing this for you. I'm a young black man. 
Doing all that I can to stand. Oh, but when I look around and I see what's being done to my kind every day, I'm being hard to this prey. My people don't want no trouble. We've had enough strong goal. I just want to live. God protect me. I just want to live. I just want to live. I don't know about you, but when I saw that video, I felt the pain. I felt the pain. He he was expressing to me what I what what I wish I could sing and expressing to you. And the first time, hear me now, the first time that I began to realize that I need to experience the pain or I need to feel the pain of injustice was when I would, you know, I grew up in, in, in Mobile, Alabama, uh, down south, and my 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 grandparents had 14 children. And my father being one of those children, I heard story after story after story after story of injustice injustice that they themselves experience. And so as I'm growing up in this household, I'm growing up thinking that all white people are evil. All white people are mean. All white people hate black people. And it wasn't that my parents were deliberately teaching me this, but after story after story, one story being that my grandfather's father and my grandmother's mother, uh, my, my grandfather's father and my grandfather and my grandmother's father were both killed by white men. Why? Because of the color of their skin. Why? No other reason. Hear me. No other reason but for the color of their skin. Did they go to prison? Absolutely not. Did they go to jail? Absolutely not. Did they do any time? Absolutely not. It was injustice after injustice after injustice. And then I began to understand why my parents thought the way that they thought. Why my parents talked the way that they talked. It was because of repeated offenses, repeated injustices happening in their lives. What I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, is that the more these things happen uh, and, and, and you see them, I want you to, I want you to b begin to try to, to feel the pain of it. I want you to try to feel the pain of it. Feel the pain of this woman as she's going before this judge. The Bible says that she has a plea. A plea sounds like when you are just begging, you please, please, I don't have a husband. Please, I don't have any sons to take care of me. Please, I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. Please get me justice. Please, I need this property. Please, I need this house. You have to learn to feel the pain that they're going through, the pain of injustice. And as you feel that pain, hear me now, as you feel that pain, and as you think about what recently happened, I want you to think about the pain that all of these families are going through because they no longer have their loved one. And on top of that, the police now who did these things, and specifically in those cases where it was, where it was, they didn't have any guns, there was absolutely no reason for the, for the police officer to take the life of these individuals Feel that pain. Feel that pain. Feel the fact that no longer can Tamir Rice's mom pick him up in the morning and take him to school. No longer can Trayvon Martin's mom uh, walk into his bedroom and say, uh, breakfast is ready. No longer can, can Sandra Bland's family, no longer can Breonna Taylor's family celebrate birthdays the way they used to celebrate birthdays with her. No longer can George Floyd's daughter run up to him and say, daddy, give me a hug. No longer. You have to learn to feel the pain. 
Feel the pain of it. Feel the pain of the five young men who were falsely accused of of, of, of raping and leaving this woman uh, for dead. Feel the pain of these young boys who were arrested and thrown into jail. Feel the pain that even though they were innocent, simply because of the color of their skin, the Central Park Five, they called them, simply because of the color of their skin, injustice after injustice after injustice. And then here's the reality, saints. You have to learn to feel the pain of those of us in the church who have been done wrong. If you don't know what I'm talking about, let me give you some examples. The history record shows that Ellen White was advocating to the church, was advocating to the church leaders that we have a duty to the colored people. We have a duty to go down south. We have a duty to take the gospel to the newly freed slave. We have a responsibility before God. And what the history records show is that there is evidence to suggest that one of the reasons why the brethren sent Ellen White to Australia was because she was a thorn in their side, constantly speaking to them that God was calling the church to go and minister to African-Americans, newly freed slaves. And the record shows that she had a vision. And in that vision, it says that she had this vision that there were some among them who were trying to get Sister White out of the way. And a part of that is because she was declaring to them, we have a duty, a responsibility to minister to people of color. I read a story, I read the book called Mission to Black America. And inside this book, I read the story about how Edson White, he financed his ministry to black America by writing a book called The Gospel Primer. And as he wrote this book, it was a contract that a, a contract agreement between the Review and Herald that they would publish this book. And as they published the book, he would get the funds to be able to support the gospel ministry that he was doing. Well, the book happened to do extremely well. He was selling thousands upon thousands of copies. At one point, he was selling 10 to 15, 15,000 copies per month. And then all of a sudden, the money stopped flowing in. And the reason why the money stopped flowing in is because the Review and Herald chose to stop printing it. But not only did they do that, but they went and wrote another book that was very similar to the one that uh, to the gospel primer that Essen White had wrote. And it was the same size, practically the same content, and they were selling it for the same amount. And now he no longer has funds to support the work that is ministering to black America. Injustice after injustice after injustice. I'm sure you're familiar with the story of Lucy Bayard, the, the African-American woman who was taken to a hospital, an Adventist hospital, to get treatment. And when she get there, as they begin to work on her, uh, they find out that she is not a white woman, that she's a mulatto. And so they send her to a different hospital. Why? Simply because of her ethnicity because of her race she goes to the other hospital where eventually she dies 
And that is what gave the thrust to start the regional conferences in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And many people have misunderstood for years as to why the regional conferences were started. It had absolutely nothing to do with black people wanting to go and have drums by themselves. I've heard that before, that black people wanted to have drums, so they wanted to go and start their own conference. That is absolutely not what happened. What truly happened was we were asking for equal rights. We were asking for integration. We were asking for full integration. And it was said that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is not ready for that right now. We, we were, in other words, we were more influenced by the culture in our in, in society than we were by the word of God. And as a result now, the late region conference was established with the hopes that some thought that it would fail and we would come running right back to it. And today, that's why we have regional conferences. And here's what I want you to understand, beloved. What I want you to understand is that at the end of the day, if racial reconciliation is going to take place, it's going to have to happen when we, when, 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 when you can feel the pain of all the injustices. Look, people say all the time that, you know, a lot of times when we talk about coming together, the conversation begins with ending regional conferences. That's a very unfortunate thing when you consider how regional conferences started. It wasn't black people's idea to go and start our own thing. It was the church said, we're not ready for you to sit at this table, so we're going to help you start your own table. That, that's the reality. Now, now, what I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to feel the pain of injustice over the years, because here's what happened when, when, when you're constantly being uh, uh, taken advantage of or when you're constantly being put down, when you're constantly being done wrong. What happens is you begin to lose trust in the people who claim to love you and care about you. And until you feel the pain, until you understand the problems of injustice, it's very difficult to do number three. Number three is now you must protest the problem persistently. Protest the problem persistently. In other words, when you look at the widow, the Bible says that the widow, she had this problem, but the widow didn't give up. Her strategy was, I'm going to keep on coming. Her strategy was, I'm going to keep on approaching him. Her strategy was, I'm going to keep on going to him. And that is exactly what she did. And I want to encourage you today that if we're going to fight this thing together, if we're going to be together on this thing, we have to refuse to give up. Here's what it says in verse four. It says for some time, even though he refused, he finally said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. In other words, the judge understood no justice, no peace, uh, no justice, no peace. He understood it. He got it. He said, listen, I don't want this lady to keep on coming at me. She's going to have my head if I don't give her justice. And here is a quotation that I love from Sister White as she says, while we will endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bonds of peace, we will not with pen or voice cease to protest against bigotry. I'm calling on the people of God and in particular my white brothers and sisters to protest against bigotry, to protest against racism. Now here's something you have to understand. I saw this quotation, I saw this meme or this image here and I said to myself, that is so accurate, that is so true. Watch this right here. It says racism is so American that when you protest it, people think you are protesting America. That is absolutely true because 
because that's why that's why we see the reaction that we're getting right now when people are saying that we're protesting against the American flag or we're protesting against the American history. No, we're, we're dealing with, we're protesting against racism. There's a book called White Fragility. And this book explains a lot. I would encourage you to go and get it. This book explains why it is so difficult for white people to talk about racism. Right. Because because because, you know, when you are in the majority, you have it's easy to have blind spots. It's easy to not see things to not pick up things. Why? Because you just don't see it. Right. And so I want to encourage you to get to a place where you don't just say I'm not racist, but you also saying I am anti-racist. I am anti-racist. I am against racism. I am against bigotry. I am against prejudice. I am totally against these things. And therefore, I will not just march when when everybody else is marching, but I will speak out against these things. I will speak up against these things. See, it's one thing to protest when it's a large crowd protesting. Everybody's out protesting. I saw some of you guys on this past Sunday protesting, kneeling with us. And I said, man, praise God. Right. But can I tell you something? I saw a young lady who was out in St. Joseph walking by herself. In fact, she was running, jogging. There was nobody around her. And she just had these two signs. She was running around jogging. I said, man, let me turn around and see what she's holding on all the signs. I turned around, caught up with her, asked her if I could take a picture of her because I was going to use her in this sermon. And she said, sure, absolutely. And she's holding up these signs and she's declaring to the world that I am against what happened and I will continue to be against what happened. Even if nobody else is out here with me, I'm going to do it all by myself. Why? Because I am going to protest this problem persistently. And I'm telling you today that if you're going to Fight this fight. If you're going to join the fight, if you're going to 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 make sure that your voice is heard, that you're going to be all about making sure that black people lives matter in this in, in this nation. You got to do it persistently. You got to do it persistently. I'm not telling you to get out and run and jog. I'm not telling you to get out and protest, hold up signs. You can do that. But there are some other things that you can do as well. And I'm going to show you what, we, what you can do as well as far as that's concerned. Right. Here's number four. Number four. Number four. Uh, you have to be a partner for progress. You have to be a partner for progress. In other words, in other words, the Bible says in, 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 in verse number three, and there was a widow. Mm, guess what? A widow means that she was doing it all by herself. A widow means that, 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 that she's out there alone. A widow means that there should have been somebody else championing her cause with her. Why do you say that? Well, I say that because the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 17, God says, I want you to learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless. Watch this now plead the case of the widow. In other words, the widow should not have been going to the judge all by herself. The widow should have had a whole slew of people who were aware of the problem and they were saying to the judge, not only am I here representing her, but I'm here representing truth. I'm here representing righteousness. I'm here representing justice. And so we're pleading with you, judge. We're demanding you, judge, that you will give this woman the justice that she deserves. I'm telling you right now that God 
God is looking for some white folks. God is looking for some white people, some white old people, some white young people. And I praise God that I saw a whole lot of them when they were marching. I've been on social media and I've been seeing, uh, I saw an old man who couldn't even walk anymore, had his, had his walker with him. He's, he's, he's barely able to get down and he's marching for justice. He's fighting for justice. He's protesting persistently. And I'm saying to you, I'm saying in the church, I'm saying to the people of God, where are those among you who will raise your voice? Where are those among you who will raise your voice and will say it loud that you are here to support Black Lives Matter? Now, listen, I understand that you have Black Lives Matter that is a phrase and you have Black Lives Matter that is a whole organization, a whole movement. You might you might not agree with everything that the movement has to say. I'm just I'm just asking you a question. Does my life matter to you? Does my wife's life matter to you? Does my son, TJ, Jasmine, and Daniel, do my children's lives, do they matter to you? That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, I'm talking about looking at black people and making sure that you don't have any issue, that you don't have any prejudice hiding anywhere in your heart. Now, listen to me. Listen to me. I'm asking you to become a partner in progress. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, you can do that in a number of ways, right? There are a number of organizations and entities and campaigns that are out there who are fighting these issues that we're seeing happening in the news right now. And one of them is called Eight Can't Wait. And Eight Can't Wait are eight different policies, practices that police officers can adapt to decrease police violence by 72%. These are things that you can go online and you can begin to advocate for. You can go to the website, 8 Can't Wait, and you can look up and you can see if in your city, if the police department has adapted these practices or these policies. And before you go champion or anything or campaign for anything, I encourage you to look it up and do the research and find out for yourself about the validity of all of these things. There's another organization, if you want to do something for Adventists, there's uh, Adventists for Social Justice. These are young adult Adventists who have come to the point to say, you know what, enough is enough. We have to raise our Adventist voices and speak to these issues collectively as a body. Now, historically, within the black church, uh, you know, there's always been champions for social justice. Let me tell you something. I'll be honest with you. I was, I'm saddened when I, when I, when I don't see the same kind of energy, the same kind of effort, the same kind of voices being raised when, 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 when something like what happened to George Floyd happens from my white pastors, from my white brothers and sisters, as I see when the Pope sneezes. As I see when Michael Vick is accused of, 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 of being harmful towards dogs, the same energy that I see go into that. I'm looking and I'm trying to find, I'm, I'm trying to find pastors uh, in the Adventist church. I'm looking for the voices and seeing who is speaking to these issues when people are getting murdered in broad daylight by those who have sworn to protect them. Where, 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 where are they? Where are they? Where are they? I'm asking you right now to partner with me for progress. Now, when I say partner with me, I'm saying partner with me in particular. I'm saying partner with me in Harbor of Hope. I'm saying partner with me in Benton Harbor because one of the things that we're going to be doing is we are relaunching an initiative. We've already been doing it, but we're relaunching it right now because I would like to invite you to help Benton Harbor rise up. That's right. I would like to invite you to help Benton Harbor in our initiative to teach health and economics and entrepreneurship 
leadership and education and justice in our community. And you can get involved simply by going to riseupbenharvard.com. Riseupbenharvard.com. We're looking about, we're looking at long-term strategies. We're not just protesting in the streets. We'll continue to do that. But we want to look at programs and projects that's going to make sure that we sustain what is happening right now in the outcry for justice. And if you want to be involved, go there. Listen, we are in need of educators. We are in need of entrepreneurs. If you have a skill that you can teach, if you have some ideas that you would like to share that's going to help us in any of these categories, build up the young men and the young women in our community, I want you to go to that website and see how you can get involved. And last but not least, as you partner for progress, here's the last thing. I want you to pray to be purged from prejudice persistently. I want you to pray to be purged from prejudice persistently. Here's what I mean by that. Remember, the text starts out. Jesus says he told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. In other words, in other words, in other words, I want you to see that Jesus uses prayer. He uses prayer. He uses a story of justice to teach the necessity of persistent prayer. And I want to challenge you today to make sure that as you are praying, and I'm doing this myself, to make sure that we're praying that God will purge us from prejudice, that God will purge us from racism, that God will purge us from tribalism, that God will purge us from any type of attitude or mindset that causes us to look negatively upon one another. Purge us of prejudice. I'll tell you some good news. I want to end with some good news. End with some good news. So I remember when I first came here, right, I moved from Lake Region, I mean, uh, uh, from South Central Conference, uh, which is a predominantly African-American conference. And I moved here to Michigan, which is a predominantly Caucasian conference. And as I have been here, uh, I think I've told you this before, I've never been around so many white people in my life. All right. And I remember my first camp meeting. And I remember uh, one day. I was right there with my, 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 my son and my daughter and my wife. And as we are pushing my son uh, in the stroller on our way, probably going to get something to eat or something like that. And uh, two young men, two young white boys were, were standing over there. They were talking to me and they were asking me questions. And one of them looked and saw my son. And he's there playing with my son and talking to my son. And then he looked up at me and he said, he said, you know, he told his friend, he said, listen, man, he, he, your son is going to be, his son is going to be a really great basketball player. And the little boy looked at him and he said to him, he said, is that all you see him as? I said, what in the world did I just hear? Here is this 12 years old, 12 year old boy. He's talking to his friend and he said to his friend, is that all you see him as just a basketball player? Is that all you see him as just an athlete? Is that all you see him as as just a criminal? Is that all you see him as just somebody who can entertain you? Is that all you see him as? This young boy at 12 years old had the spiritual perception and maturity to speak to his friend and say to him, 
Don't just call him. Don't just limit him to what you think he can do or can be. He is more than just that. And I want to tell you right now that God is looking for some young people who will look at their friends, who will look at their parents even and say to them, what you are saying right now is racist. What you are saying right now is bigotry. What you are saying right now is wrong. And God will not tolerate that. And you won't make it to the kingdom thinking like that or talking like that. That's what God is looking for. That's what God is looking for. God is looking for some young people who are as brave as that young man who has the perception of that young man to say that racism is unacceptable and to not settle for being not racist, but to be an anti-racist. Here's the last thing I'll say. I close this. I close. I close with this one. I was talking to uh, a uh, one of a, a church historian and this church historian told me a story about uh, Ellen White's will. Did you know that in Ellen White's will, uh, she made provision so that after she passes away, that uh, the sales from her books, from her writings, that a portion of those sales would go towards supporting Oakwood University. Right. That was in her will. She made sure that there would be finances to go towards supporting that work from the sales of her books. Now, unfortunately, when she died, that did not happen. Didn't happen. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until one day Elder E.E. Cleveland was preaching at an evangelistic meeting. And after he finished preaching, uh, a gentleman, came, a white guy came to him and handed him an envelope. And he got the envelope, gave it to his wife. She put it in her purse. And uh, when they got back to the hotel room that night, pulled the envelope out. And uh, when the guy gave him the envelope, he said, you'll know what to do this. So he pulls the envelope out. And inside this envelope is a copy of Ellen White's will. And it's in this in this will that he begins to read and discover that a portion of her royalties from her book sales were supposed to go to support the black work, as they referred to it back then. Right. And so now hear me, guys, hear me. This happened. Ellen White died in 1915. And this didn't happen until I think about 19. Uh, uh, 70s, right? 1970. And so you're talking about for about 55 years, a neglect of doing what the prophet had asked the brethren to do. Could that have been racially motivated? What do you think? Well, I think so. Because it has repeatedly happened time and time again. But here's leadership. I've never met this man. I've heard a lot of good things and positive things about him. His name is Elder Neil Wilson, former president of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. Well, eventually, Elder, Kel, I mean, Elder Cleveland gave this letter to uh, Elder Dudley, and Elder Dudley gave the letter to uh, Elder Wilson. Elder Wilson. And Elder Wilson went to the White Estate and asked about this and uh, presented it as, hey, this is a this is a great crisis that we're in. If this is indeed 100 uh, percent uh, true and indeed it was. And as such now, as such, what he decided to do was they came up with a plan. They came up with a formula that would that would that would provide restitution, if you will, for all of those years of neglecting what the prophet had instructed the people to do to support the work of God's people. And what I'm saying to you right now is that 
that the church of the living God, this church right now is in need of some white men who will take on the leadership and lead the charge in leading the church towards racial reconciliation. Black folks have been saying uh, 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 there's been racial injustice for since since we've got here, since we've got here. But we are in need now of, of, of persistent and consistent white advocacy. If we're really going to bring about the change in our society and the change in the church, will you be that leader? You don't have to have an office in a church. You don't have to be the general conference president. You don't have to be a conference president. You don't have to be a pastor. You just have to be a willing person who says enough is enough is enough. I want to see the church made whole. If that is your desire. If that is your aim, I invite you to pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray for racial reconciliation in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I don't know what that looks like, God. I really don't. But you do. And you are ready and willing to show willing, humble leaders what it looks like. You are ready to show willing, humble, lay folk, everybody. If we would humble ourselves and come before you, seeking your will and yours alone. We thank you, God. We love you. And we pray that you would help us in fighting this fight for justice. In Jesus' name, amen.